G'day listeners, I'm Edgar Grester and you're listening to the Business of Biodiversity. Technology has made our lives easier and more convenient. From the wheel to Wi-Fi, how could we live without it? But technology has made big impacts towards conservation efforts too. So in this episode, we take to the skies to see how drone technology is saving time and money for the conservation movement. We talk to three conservationists turned tech heads about a range of projects from monitoring remote threatened species and bird migration to rapid fire reforestation. We'll hear about their challenges, solutions, and their vision for the future. And it's a bright one. My name's Blaise Porter and I'm the Director of Responsible Business for Fujitsu Australia and New Zealand. And that means I look after all of our environmental, community and First Nations programs in the region. Blaise's role is to look at ways that Fujitsu's technology can help in these areas. And she's also doing some research in this space. I'm completing a Master's in Sustainability and Climate Policy. So I'm just researching and um, writing up now my dissertation which is on how we in Australia can use artificial intelligence to advance the biosphere SDGs which are six clean water and sanitation, 13 climate action and uh, 14 and 15 which are life on land and below water respectively. So it's really about you know what are the opportunities for technology to kind of help us get to grips with these, you know, very complex problems, expensive problems to solve in a really short amount of time. You know, what are the barriers to doing that? What will enable it? You know, what are the things that both as technology and conservation practitioners we've got to, you know, be aware of and be conscious of as we're, we're looking to these solutions? Now, my first experience of Fujitsu was about 20 years ago using the printer at my first job. But as technology has involved so too has the company. Fidgets is a really interesting business. So we've got loads of kind of advanced technologies like artificial intelligence, but, um, you know, blockchain, IoT or Internet of Things, which are all just kind of coming into the, you know, commercial mainstream around, you know, this critical decade for action in terms of, you know, climate change and biodiversity and the environment more broadly. So... We've got nearly a thousand threatened or endangered species just in New South Wales. What are the opportunities for technology to play a role in that? Fujitsu partnered with the Saving Our Species program to create Digital Owl. The project's aim was to assist rangers with monitoring efforts of two threatened species, an acacia and a daisy, that are only found on the slopes of Mount Dangar in the upper Hunter region of New South Wales. They would either you know, fly a helicopter up there and look around, or they'd land the helicopter on a mountain and then somebody would kind of get out and you know, do a monitoring walk around the helicopter. And um, as you can imagine, that's really difficult. <laughs> it's quite expensive to do. Yeah, it's very emissions intensive in terms of the helicopter fuel. And also they don't own the helicopters, so they, they rent them and they couldn't always get them. So if they were needing the helicopters to do you know, bushfire surveillance work, for instance, uh, then they weren't available. And for some of the plants, it was much easier to spot them when they were in flower. So if you miss that kind of flowering time, then you might not actually get, you know, an opportunity until the following year to go up and do your monitoring. So what we thought was, okay, well, instead of a helicopter, could we get a big drone? And it was like a three-metre wingspan drone. So, you know, needed a commercial pilot licence and, you know, CASA approval and everything like that. Over two days, flew it all over the mountain with both a high-definition camera and a hyperspectral imaging camera, so able to kind of see into the, the infrared spectrum to see colours that, you know, you and I with our eyeballs uh, can't, can't detect. Two days and over 6,000 images later, 
Blaze and her team then fed all the information to the AI technology. Spent a lot of time training up the model on these 6,000 images to try and detect, okay, that's the acacia, that's the daisy. And then we were also looking for, you know, what was the prickly pear, which is an invasive plant in this environment and kind of really competes with these native species for water resources in particular. And that was actually verified, you know, with a ground truthing exercise. <laughs> Sent someone up there, we said, here's all the GPS where we think the plants are. Go and check them out. And so we were up at about, you know, 60, 70, 80% levels of accuracy for the native plants. And with the prickly pear, which has the advantage of not really looking like anything else in the environment, uh, we were up at, you know, like the 95 plus level of accuracy. So, you know, certainly as good as a human being. And, you know, when you kind of combine that with the, the people expertise you know, the people who are really intimately involved in kind of caring for these local landscapes that they love. We were able to get that great result in terms of the technical accuracy. And then, you know, what that means for saving our species is a way to monitor the species extent, the effectiveness of those controls, you know, how these plants are adapting to climate change in the environment and do that in a way that's, you know, faster, easier, cheaper. So what's the takeaway for technology application in conservation efforts? If we look at the AI-enabled results from that project, the important thing is, you know, they do need human action and they're an aid to decision-making. So really what we looked at there was the ability to do better quality monitoring at a much lower price. And for saving our species, and I guess by extension all of us who living in New South Wales, that means that, you know, the money saved looking at that species could be, you know, invested into recovery plans or monitoring efforts for another species because, you know, although it is the largest sum of money, I think, in Australia devoted to threatened and endangered species, you know, when it's got to cover a thousand species, there are going to be some that, you know, aren't as high on the priority list. So it's about, you know, really, I think, doing more with less and being able to, you know, monitor and I think therefore predict and make some decisions in advance for what will happen with these species in a climate where it is warmer. You know, what will happen with these species when, you know, we might have more frequent droughts or more frequent fires coming through those areas so that we can make decisions about preservation or seed banks or, you know, replacement populations or so on. You know, these are species that are very vulnerable because they are, you know, so few in number and also, you know, really geographically restricted in their range. So, you know, if there was to be, I guess, an insurance population, that will take time to establish. And in order to make those decisions, you need to have a really sound basis of data that you're making that decision from. Drone technology is not only helping with monitoring efforts of threatened species, it's also helping repopulate landscapes by making improvements to tree planting efforts. The effectiveness of planting trees by hand just doesn't work anymore. That's Amarik Madus, founder and CEO of Lord of the Trees, a global reforestation project combining precision drone technology with the knowledge of environmental experts, scientists, and indigenous communities. Their mission is to replant seeds and grow new ecosystems around the globe more efficiently than existing manual approaches. One of the biggest planting operation started two years ago in Turkey, where the country planted 11 million trees. They broke a world record. Now, two years later, the article was published in The Guardian last November. More than 90% of those seedlings have all died. 
it's really a tragedy uh, when, when you think about it. Now, with the drones, we have a completely different approach. So we really emulate nature. Now, nature has been sowing seeds everywhere all around the planet. With a master's in environmental management, Amerik has devoted much of his working life to conservation efforts. But it was a late-night David Attenborough documentary that germinated the idea behind Lord of the Trees. I was watching a documentary one night by David Attenborough on the Galapagos Island, and he was explaining how the first seeds that landed on the islands were carried, they were big floating seeds carried by the cold currents, so mainly coconut seeds. And after that came the very small tiny seeds carried by wind, similar to dandelion seeds. And the last one were seeds that were dropped by birds. On the picture, you see this seagull pooping. And David said these were the seeds that had the most chances of survival because of the rich, dense nutrient of, of the bird dropping. And for me, that was my haha moment. I realized this is it. I knew I wanted to do something with climate change and tackling a global problem. You need to think of the earth. You cannot just think of, of your backyard. That's when I had my, my moment. I realized I'm like, we could just um, substitute birds with flying drones, robotic birds, so to say. And then uh, we would create specific seed pods. It's a little seed pod, which is made out of, um, so the outside, depending on the site, is either made of seaweed or out of a corn byproduct. So uh, it's 100% organic, doesn't harm the environment. And the inside is a gel that is specific for the site that we are going to work on. So there's a little nutrient cocktail mixed up inside this biodegradable pouch, which has been designed specific for each site that you're working on. Correct. Uh, so we load these seed pods onto the drone, onto a special seeder. And then the seeder knows exactly where to drop or where to shoot the seed pods into the landscape based on some computing technology that we have. The germination rates that we have compared to planting seedlings are over 70% of germination rate after two years. So in 48 hours, we are able to replant more than a million trees into the landscape. And in terms of cost, we're probably 70% cheaper when it comes to using the drone technology. So it's two things that work in our favor. It's the speed at which we can recover and help reforest those ecosystems and the cost as well. There's only five of us on the planet doing reforestation with drones at the moment. We differentiate from the other ones in the fact that we plan where every seed pod is going to be dropped precisely on the landscape. For Amerik and his team, this involves four phases. First, they map the existing landscape conditions, both weather patterns and soil health. Then they consult with seed banks and local indigenous communities about appropriate species and where to put them. Once approved, they then create and distribute the seed pods via the drones and follow up with monitoring over a five-year period. We've been studying plants over the last 18 years in a test forest that uh, we have in uh, Western Australia, 250 kilometers east of Perth. And the research has been done over the last 18 years on companion planting and the symbiotic relationship that plants have amongst each other uh, within a landscape. And we are just extrapolating this research now using AI and obviously drone technology. Americ's focus on companion planting is about restoring ecosystems with a focus on biodiversity and resilience. And he says 
we need to have the surrounding ecosystem in mind when tackling the challenges of threatened species. We need to realize that there's a lot that happens before a species becomes extinct. And when a species become endangered, it's a sign that the ecosystem is slowly falling apart. So what we want to do is we want to intervene early on to slow the demise or to really stop it. In Australia in particular, Australia is home to you know, some unique plant species, but also has one of the highest extinction rates in the world. In Australia, the Banksia prionophilia plant is a small spiky Banksia that grows about to 60 centimeters tall and has a tough upright leaves. And it's the only one in a population of about 100 plants that are known to exist worldwide. So what we do in that regards with the seed selection, when we have an opportunity to reintroduce into a landscape a plant in particular that is on the endangered species, we consult with seed banks. And we have a partnership in Sydney with Plant Bank, the seed bank of the Royal Botanic Gardens, to see if we can access those endangered species and then slowly reintroduce them into the landscape and hopefully go back into that landscape and manually get more seeds and then help these species to recover over time. With each reseeding project, whether it's trees, shrubs or grasses, Americ's mantra is strength in numbers and diversity with companion planting because the plants help each other to grow. Whether they are of the same species or a different species, do connect to each other via their roots, are able to send messages to each other via uh, electrical impulses, and are also able, and this is probably one of the most fascinating aspects of this symbiotic relationship amongst plants, but they're able to carry nutrients and water from one part of the forest to the next helping each other, you know, grow and, and go through some um, times where there is probably a lack of nutrient in some part of the forest. This lack of nutrients in the environment is being exacerbated by climatic events like bushfires and extractive processes like mining. Americ says that understanding what's going on beneath the soil surface and establishing healthy foundations is critical for any reforestation project. And when you know that more than 90% of the roots of a tree are between the first meter, so they really go you know, uh, horizontally as opposed to going down, it's very important to understand that there is a whole network underground that we're just starting to realize and we're just starting to understand. And this is vital for any reforestation project. It would be like building a house and wanting to put the roof first without any consideration for the foundation. That's very important. And I keep coming back to that over and over with all the projects that we do. There's a lot of education that we do with our clients as well, which is about this need to spend time to build the foundation. So in our case, the mother forest, the ground cover, make sure there is a healthy soil before we go in and actually plant seed pods of tree species. Drone technology has helped conservationists like Americ to better understand and more efficiently implement reforestation projects on the ground. But they've also been helping conservation ecologists like Debbie Saunders understand the animal world above us in the sky. 
She's the founder and chief remote pilot of Wildlife Drones. Wildlife Drones is revolutionising the animal tracking industry. It's providing a new level of capability of tracking small animals that currently can only be tracked by hand manually and one at a time. So with Wildlife Drones, we can track 40 animals simultaneously. We can create a high point, which maximises our ability to pick up the signal anywhere that the drone is launched and it can move across rugged and remote landscapes with ease, even if it's really, really difficult on the ground. So the idea is that we empower researchers and wildlife managers all around the world to get their job done more efficiently, collect high quality data more often, so that we can make really great decisions about how to better protect our wildlife. What inspired this? You know, what's the real challenge that people on the ground are facing? I looked at the drone as a platform, really, to address a need that I had for my own research. So my research has focused on small migratory birds, and we know nothing about their migratory movements. And really, it's a major part of their life cycle, but we know nothing about it. And so that was the inspiration. I wanted to be able to shed light on how these birds know where to go and when across really vast landscapes. The problem is that the majority of the world's wildlife species are too small for satellite and GPS tags. So those sorts of tags are fantastic for larger animals where you can remotely get data um, from a satellite or, or GPS system. However, um, if the tag is five grams or more, that is too big for about 70, 75% of the world's wildlife. So all of the amazing stories you hear about migration are typically really big things, but most things you can't track using those tags. So what I wanted to do was to actually find a more efficient way of looking for the tiny tags that are used on the majority of wildlife. I didn't want to reinvent the tag because people are using these tags as a standard thing all around the world. What I wanted to do was to be able to track that standard tag more efficiently. And whenever you're out manually tracking with the arm up in the air for hours and hours, listening for ping, ping, one animal at a time, you just think there's got to be a better way, right? So, <laughs> and one of the things that you're always trying to do is get to higher ground because the higher you are, the more likely you are to be in line of sight with the tag and be able to pick up the signal. So rather than me physically trying to get myself higher and higher and climbing on top of cars or fences or, you know, any mountain I can come close to, let's get the drone to do that hard work for us and just launch it wherever we need. Debbie has devoted over 20 years of her career tracking and studying the migration habits of the swift parrot, a threatened species endemic to southeastern Australia. After many trials and modifications, Debbie has developed a system that doesn't harm or disturb the animals in any way. So with the drone, wherever we launch it, it actually is listening for the signals from the tags. And the different tags are able to be detected from different distances away, depending on their size, so how powerful the tags are. So with our system, unlike just about every other drone application in the world, is we're actually listening. So we don't need to go close to the animals. So a tag might be detectable from a kilometre away, for example. And so we launch the drone, pick up a signal, and we, we rotate it, and it listens in all directions. And once it's done that, it provides arrows on the map for all of the tags that it can hear within range. 
So we will point an arrow, okay, oh, the, the birds are that way. Then we can actually fly the drone not towards the birds, but across to the side so that we get some nice perpendicular bearings to triangulate where the birds are. So we actually are disturbing them less by tracking with the drone because we're keeping further away than we would be if we were manually tracking. So it's a, it's a really important point and I think it's one that is a real strength in our system in that we can do all of what we do from a distance without disturbing the animals. In terms of the swift parrot, the thing I really wanted to understand was their migratory movements. The insights that we have gained is actually looking at the area of habitat that they are reliant on in the wintering area. So how much area, how much forest do they need in order to survive to successfully migrate back to Tasmania? And so actually just getting an understanding of that is really crucial um, for decision making about impacts on the species habitat. Because it does migrate over thousands of kilometres at times, it's often dismissed as, oh, it can just move somewhere else. It doesn't matter if we chop down this bit or clear this bit of habitat. But what we found when we were tracking them was that they actually use quite a small area very intensively for a long period of time. And so removing known areas where the birds go can have a very high impact proportionally on the population. So there's actually roosting habitat as well as foraging habitat and they need the two things together. And that's actually a really important part of the social dynamics where different flocks come together and roost and then they spread out across the landscape. So there's there's heaps more we need to learn. We've only just, you know, looked at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding their movements, but just from tracking them a couple of different seasons in different areas in the winter time, we've been able to shed light on the importance of even small patches and often there are only small patches left of their habitat. So we haven't cracked the migratory movement thing yet, but I think we, we are certainly starting to piece together the puzzle on the sort of uh, spatial scale at which conservation measures need to be implemented so that this species can continue to survive because it is critically endangered. Its habitat does still get cleared every week and all of the impacts on the species that are known continue to happen and so anything we can do to inform decision makers about what is needed to protect the species moving forward is is helpful. So in this case the studies that were done were funded by regional government bodies so a report was written for that. The records were submitted to the relevant government departments. So if the records are submitted in the government databases, then whenever an impact is proposed in a particular area, it triggers, there needs to be an assessment of that. So that's a really critical part. But Debbie says that technology and data alone won't make a difference to changes that need to happen at all levels of society and government. I had this dawning moment. I could do 10 years of research and publish all of my stuff. And that's important for getting the credibility and for people, you know, giving you the, the kudos for the work and the knowledge and experience that you have. But if I can't then also tell the story and get, you know, community groups impassioned to take action, to get policymakers to make different decisions and to get politicians to stand up for things which they might not otherwise stand up for, the data is wasted. Mm-hmm. 
so meeting with politicians and telling them the story of the swift parrot what it is that they need and how amazing they are and and the impacts that are happening and that's really powerful to help throughout that whole sort of decision making chain The world around us is constantly evolving, both for technology and for threatened species. So what does the future look like for our pioneering conservationists, like Blaise Porter, who we heard from at the start of the episode? From a very fundamental point of view, you know, we all live here on this planet. We don't have another one. And we have a really urgent time frame to hopefully solve some of these problems, but if not solve them, to make really significant headway to ensure that the situation is not unrecoverable. I'll say, in the future. And I think we need all the tools at our disposal to solve these challenges and to look for new ways to really start making an impact. And I think, you know, particularly in the technology space, and I think this is pretty well recognised, you know, we do absolutely have that responsibility to bring these tools to these urgent problems and to do that in a way that's collaborative and respectful of all the different stakeholders and to do that in a way that gets results. And I I think the interesting thing is, you know, as I touched on before, a lot of this is kind of experimental. So we don't often know if that's always going to be the case, but it's certainly worth finding out. I think one of the really interesting things that I've observed being in a technology company is that talking about this project in particular has been incredibly powerful, both internally for our own employees and in talking about ourselves as a way of communicating our purpose and of making that, you know, technology for impact story really accessible and really easy to understand. When we're talking about what's a blockchain, you know, <laughs> what's, a, what's a Bitcoin, you know, that's pretty remote for a lot of us. You know, even a lot of people in the tech sector might not have much more than a pretty working grasp of what those concepts would entail. So when we can tell the story in a way that is easy to understand, that connects to what people care about, because I do think people care about wild places and they care about endangered species and they want to know that action is possible. Fujitsu's purpose is to make the world more sustainable and build trust through innovation. And any projects like Digital Owl that get funded need to connect back to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And for Blaze, who's working at the intersection of technology, conservation and innovation, she's really interested in the role that Indigenous communities will play. You know, we have huge amounts of biodiversity that are held by our traditional custodians, that are held by Indigenous people. And that's actually the case worldwide. You know, there was a great study in Nature, actually, I think just last year, that, you know, really highlighted the amount of biodiversity that worldwide is held by traditional people. And so there's all sorts of cultural IP issues that, you know, we just haven't really thought about. For Americ from Lord of the Trees, they have a process in place to work with Indigenous communities to get the best environmental outcomes. Because for him, modern tech needs ancient knowledge. When you look at technology, it's one thing to understand the options that are currently available and will even grow more into the future in terms of opportunity and what drone and robotics can do in any field, not just environmental restoration. But it's also very important to look back at ancestral cultures Aboriginal cultures as well and understand where they're coming from because that know-how needs to be incorporated with the tools that we'll be using for the future. 
For those conservationists looking for technological solutions to their challenges, Debbie Saunders from Wildlife Drones has some advice. With anything innovative, you really need to have an open mind, be flexible, give it a shot. (laughs) And if you fail, you learn. Um, If you don't fail, you're probably not trying hard enough or doing something cutting edge enough. (laughs) It's a good sign of resilience in your character. But knowing what the question is that you're trying to answer is the key. And if what you're doing isn't really giving you the answers that you need or you can see a better way, just give it a shot. Actually, I think conservationists might appear to be slow on the uptake of technology, but I believe it's not from lack of trying, it's from lack of funding. And there are a number of really amazing groups in the world now that are really based around wildlife and technologies. And I would say connect with them. I'm very fortunate that I managed to find investors, private investors, who were just as passionate as me. So, <laughs> um, And they believed in my idea. And it still blows me away to this day that people will give us money, uh, you know, be a part of the business and join the journey that's enabled us to get where we are today. And without it, it wouldn't have been possible. So... A good team, a bit of backing and lots of determination is uh, really key. Yeah, I'm very lucky to have my job. The intersection of being in that, you know, sustainability and purpose-led space and its intersection with advanced technology, that really is just coming to the fore. There's not a more exciting place to be in my mind. This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project with the support from the New South Wales Government's Saving Our Species program. To hear more episodes, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more information about the Saving Our Species program, visit savingourspecies.online slash podcast. Thanks for listening.